0: The following is from East Delta Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at www.eastdeltabc.com. I trust you didn't have trouble finding a seat this morning. (laughs) Uh, Rain may have dampened. I wish I had a joke to tell. It's so quiet in here this morning. I don't have any jokes that are clean, so I can't tell those. uh, Bad. You remember the? the, I have a couple. Marilyn told me I couldn't tell. A couple of them at Ronnie's told me. (laughs) Uh, So I'll stay away from those. Uh, So we'll just get right into the Word then. How's that? Let's go to Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to continue through Philippians talking about joy. And uh, as we talk about joy... Uh, chapter three we 're going to we 're going to look verses one through eleven but we 'll kind of have those broken broken up into uh into three different points when life goes well for people who don 't know the lord they 're elated i mean they're they 're thrilled about that but often when hard times come they those same people they sink into despair and and when we talk about joy, true joy. Uh, that God gives us and enables us to roll through those times from from the high times to the low times Uh, he's he's available to help us during adversity we can still have joy and without permanently seeking into some kind of uh, debilitating lows Uh, and then in the good times we can manage those without you know moving into deceptive highs sometimes and and that joy can be disrupted by life trials and it can be disrupted by sinful tendencies. And this morning we're going to talk about things uh, three things that we must do or we can do to maintain our joy, to keep our joy. Uh, one of those tendencies is a tendency to define our 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 worth in terms of our own efforts and achievements. Today, if you look around kind of where we are uh, in the world today, we define, uh, kind of our, our worth by by what we do and who we are and and nineteenth century bible scholar G S Bowles he pointed out the ultimate futility of of ambition and that isn't accompanied by dedication to God. Now I don't want you to miss what that that point he said there, the that the futility of ambition he doesn't end there, he said, if it's not accompanied by a dedication to God. And he, he cited four powerful world rulers that kind of, uh, kind of display that. They had great ambition that had no uh, dedication to God with it. Alexander the Great, he said he was not satisfied even when he had completely subdued the nations. And he wept because there was no more worlds to be conquered. And he died at an early age in the state of debauchery. Hannibal, who, was filled, who filled three bushels of gold rings that he had taken from the knights that he had slaughtered, he committed suicide by follow, swallowing poison, uh, and very few people even noted his passing. He left this earth completely unmourned. Julius Caesar, he uh, stained his garment with the blood of one million of his foes, he conquered 800 cities only to be stabbed by his best friend at the scene of his greatest triumph. Napoleon, he uh, was a feared conqueror <clears throat> after being uh, through Europe. He spent his last years in banishment. Uh, Solomon, he he warned of that when he talked about the uh, the poor prospects of anyone who would succeed without relying on God. And, and those things, lest we lose sight of what I'm talking about, are... are Guys that had ambitions, I mean, they, they, had great, uh, they had great works, but there was no dedication to God that accompanied that. And because of that, uh, in each of those situations, uh, they, they, simply, uh, they simply ended their life or their life simply ended unnoticed. Uh, Charles Swindoll, he offers some of the same advice. He says, sometimes within all of us or something within all of us ...warms to human strokes. We're, motivi- we're motivated to do more... ...when our efforts are noticed and rewarded. That's why they make things... ...impressive trophies and silver platters... ...and bronze plaques and gold medals. What does it do? It drives us to do more... ...to gain, to gain greater recognition... ...to achieve more valuable rewards... to ...to better pay... <clears throat> ...to higher promotions... But how easy it is for us to forget that not one of those accomplishments gives a a person what he or she may lack deep within. That's why they don't bring lasting satisfaction. And much more importantly, none of them earns God's favor. When I was a youth minister at First Baptist Fairview, we uh, had a friend that uh, his name was Neil Jeffries, and most of y'all probably don't even know that name. Uh, he was the youth minister at Prestonwood Baptist Church and he played college football and uh he was uh i believe he was the quarterback in in his college and uh i believe he may have played for Baylor and uh, he talked about the uh the game before the championship game they were uh they were in a real close game and he was he was there as the quarterback and with just seconds left on the clock he uh uh, he made an impressive pass, and they won the game in order to move to the national championship. And he said that day everyone carried, carried him off on their shoulders, and they were, uh, they were so elated by his play. Well, the very next week, uh they were in the uh they were in the national championship and if i don't have this right they were in the game before it was either the national championship or the game right before the national championship he was at quarterback and time was running out and they were moving down close to score and they were behind and uh he said i lost track of the downs and uh so on the fourth down, he they had a big play, and they was out of timeouts, and he, he ran down the field, and he got his line lined up, and he snapped the ball, and he, he threw it into the ground on fourth down. And, of course, the, the ball went over on downs. And, and uh, as he was telling this story at a youth camp we were at, uh, he, he made a comparison of how how different his accomplishments were the week before he was the hero, and they, they carried him out of the stadium as their champion. And he said, at that point, uh, everyone abandoned him. He said, the team just was their heads down, walked off the field, and he said, there I ended up sitting on the bench all alone. Uh, and that's what accomplishments do sometimes there's nothing wrong with setting goals and and reaching accomplishments but when there's no dedication to God that goes with that they can they can be so fickle the crowd can be so fickle the 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 point he made which I just add to this doesn't have anything really to do with the sermon this morning is is only one person came and and that was his dad and he said my dad came and he he took me in his arms and he hugged me and said that's all right son you know, this is not the end, that, that life's going to go on and things are going to continue. And, of course, he used that in his... Uh, in his speech that day about how God the Father comes to us when, when the world kind of abandons us and lets us know that, that there's more to come and that this is not the end. But, but today we're going to talk, uh, talk about the, the chief stealers of joy, things that, that when we're uh, the world may have us uh, lifted up on a cloud and we may feel like we're full of joy and then some circumstance may kind of rob us of our joy. And as Paul is talking to the church at Philippi, he's talking about maintaining joy. And how they can can maintain that joy beyond the the ups and downs that the world would have us think what joy is so when we do that he lists a couple of things and I want to share these three things with you this morning about uh, maintaining joy and the first thing is this to keep our joy we have to realize it's worth safeguarding and Paul says this right off the bat in verse one he says finally my brethren rejoice in the Lord for me to for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safety or it's safe. And, and what Paul is reminding these believers is that they're, they're, they're a, to be a people that, that are characterized by joy. And this joy that he's talking about is found in the Lord. He, he says rejoice in the Lord, or literally what he says is, is to keep on rejoicing. And of course, we know that joy that that Paul is talking about is a joy that's deep within us. It's it's not this external joy that I've been describing, but it's a joy that's that's deep within us. But but keep on rejoicing and and set up joy as a barrier against those things that that he warns against earlier in Philippians. He warned he warns against dissension and grumbling and attitudes of of superiority, and and he says, rejoice in the Lord and use that as a barrier uh, to break down those things because the, our joy is, is there's, there's enough pressure in life already that'll steal us of our joy. And there's an, there's an ever-present legalistic uh, uh, loop or legalistic uh, group that, that tries to rob us of our joy. Now, I don't want you to, to, to glaze over and fall asleep when I say legalism or when I talk about legalism because that is alive and well today. And as we start thinking about maintaining joy... And we're talking about a spiritual joy, that spiritual joy, it leads into our physical life, but we're talking about maintaining a, a spiritual joy. When we talk about legalism, it'll rob us of our joy. And we'll talk more about that as we, as we go on. So Paul reminds them that, that, that maintaining joy, it's worth safeguarding against. It's worth, it's worth working towards. And secondly, he says to keep our joy, we may, we need to be aware of those who would have us to rely on the wrong things. And this is really the meat of the message this morning. He says, if we want to maintain our joy, we need to beware because there are those who would have us rely on the wrong things. And folks, I'm going to tell you in churches today and in religion today, there are those that would have us rely on the wrong things. And when we start relying on the wrong things, uh, it will rob us of our joy. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. <clears throat> you may have, there's several tra- different translations. The one I'm using today, it has beware. And uh, the NIV, which I, I normally use, it it says watch out for. But, but in, this, in this translation, it says beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of mutilation. For we are the circumcised who worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ. And we have no confidence in the flesh. Paul uses the words beware three times in, in verse 2. And, and beware, that it's a strong word. It means look out for or be warned against. So, so Paul tells the church at Philippi, here's, here's a warning for you. You need to to look out for these things that that people that want to come and steal your joy. And then he uses three uncomplimentary terms to describe those who would try to add legalistic additions to what is required to be a Christian. Now, just a, a quick side note, you know, a legalist is this. It's someone that says... Hey, here are, the, here are the, the, the list of things that we, you have to keep, you have to do to be a Christian. That, that's all legalism is. It's, it's saying the law, the Old Testament law, that's, that's the legal part of the law, that, that to be a Christian you have to keep, the law, something in the law, and that's, that's what you call legalist. And, and when Christ came, the Christ said, I, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. What does that mean? He said, I came to fulfill the requirements of the law. So what the law, the Old Testament was, it was something to show people you cannot reach God's mark. You can't, God's plumb line is here and we'll never reach it. And the law revealed that to us. It revealed us that we're going to fall short. So Christ came, and he said, I didn't come to abolish those. I came to fulfill it. I came to reach the requirements of the law. But a legalist says, okay, Christ came to fulfill the law, but you have to keep part of the law, too, to be a Christian. And, and that's what Paul is describing, and he describes these three terms. He says, first, beware of their character, and he calls them Dogs. So right off the bat, he just says, beware of dogs. Well, when Paul says dogs here, the people at Philippi would have understood what he's talking about. When we think about a dog, we probably think about Fluffy at home and sleep on the, on the hearth there, and, and we say, well, what's he talking about? Or we may think about, well, he, he's talking about a pit bulldog. Beware of those things. What Paul is talking about is, is in Palestine during this time, there were large wild packs of, of, of scavengers that ran the streets of Palestine. They were groups of dogs, and, and they posed a threat to anyone that got in their way. So so I want you to think about what Paul is saying now he's describing who those who would bring legalism to Christianity and he says, be, be aware, they're like that wild pack of dogs. I mean, they're going to bring harm to anyone who gets in their way. I think that's interesting because it's a pack of dogs. And I think a lot of times when we have folks today that, that are legalists, they come in groups and they come in packs and, and they, they, they kind of get together and they, they try to convince people. They, they, they bring harm to those. They threaten anyone who gets in their way. So so first Paul says beware of those beware of those groups of people and he characterizes them as dogs who who would come and bring harm secondly he says beware of their con of their of their conduct they're evil workers so these these group of people, they're evil they're they're evil workers, the individuals he's talking about, they're called Judaizers during this time. And and these Judaizers, they were individuals that came along behind Paul. Paul would go and he would teach and he'd be on a missionary journey or he would preach and he'd be in a church, and then when he would leave, they would come along behind Paul. And and these Judaizers would, would, would begin to teach that Christ is not enough. And they'd say, okay, we know what Paul said, but, but here's some additional things that Paul has left out. And, and you need to be aware of these things. And, and they taught you first must become a Jew in order to be a real Christian. And in order to be a real Jew, you have to, be, you have to go through the ritual of circumcision. So, so he says, beware of their evil works. And then thirdly, he tells them to beware of their creed and that, that he, he calls it mutilation. And, and he kind of does a purposeful play on words here in the terms of circumcisions and, and the word translated here mutilation. And, and what he's talking about is their legalistic requirements is more of, a, of an external ritual. So, so Paul lists these three things. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with circumcision itself, and, and Paul's not saying that. He, he's tying that to the, the legalistic law of the Old Testament. And he says you need to be aware of these, these group of people, these evil workers who, who come with this, this mutilation, this ideal of an external ritual that you would have to be uh, going through this process to be a Christian. So, so he he wants people to understand this this uh, circumcision that they're teaching has nothing to do with salvation. Now, what does all this have to do with joy? When when we start coming to that point in our spiritual life that we feel like we have to reach these legalistic goals, our joy is gone. We, we don't have joy in serving the Lord. In other words, we're having a set of rules that we're having to follow, and we're having to check this list and do these things and make sure that we're fulfilling the requirements of the law. When we do that, we, we lose sight of joy. So when Paul spoke of these individuals, he, he kind of talks about them in derogatory fashion. He, he's not rejecting everything that's Jewish. Remember, Paul's a Jew, and, and these folks he's talking to, they're Jewish, because after all, Paul's a Jew himself. He worshiped in the temple. He attended re- religious festivals. He, uh, he was circumcised as a baby. And, but, but what was most important to Paul was, was none of those things were good for salvation. And for those trying to live that life, they, they had lost their joy, and he wanted them to understand that salvation came in Christ alone. So we, we've already noted that these individuals were, were called Judaizers, and they believed that their accomplishments brought salvation. Now, I love this part. In verse 4 through 6, Paul kind of challenges them with their credentials, he kind of has a credential showdown. So, so these false teachers, what they would do is is they would come into the church and let's just hypothetically say that that Paul came into this church and had preached to us, and and next week uh, we had a group of individuals come in and they stood up before you and they said, okay, we understand that Paul was here last week and he taught about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but but as for us. Well, we, we know Christ personally. We worked at the seminary. We're professors. We've studied the background. We know all of these jots and tittles and everything in Scripture. And here's some things Paul left out and then begin to teach. Well, what they would do is they would come and they would begin to say, Hey, look at our credentials. Paul came, but look at our credentials. So Paul addresses that wisdom with them. And he says this, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, he says, I can be confident in my flesh too. If anyone else thinks they have confidence in the flesh, I even have more confidence in what I had. And then he begins to list them in verse 5. He says, circumcised on the eighth day, just like any good Jew would be, as far as the stock of Israel, in other words, my background, where are my roots? I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a, I'm a direct relationship but all the way back through the house of David. That's me. I'm a tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And concerning the law, hey, I'm a Pharisee. Concerning my zeal, I persecuted the church. Concerning the righteousness, which is the law, I'm found blameless. See, so he took these guys and he said, okay, you want to see credentials? Look at me. All of these things, here's my background. And when it comes to the law, I've, I've found, I was found blameless even in the law. So what Paul is telling those is, is he's saying, hey, all of these things you've done to try to impress God... And Paul, Paul's not bragging about who he was. Paul is simply saying, hey, I, 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 I tried all these achievements. I, I was actually trying to impress God. And, and all of these things I've done, all these human achievements and all these things, they've never impressed God. And, and you think you're impressing God because of who you are. Look at what I was. He said, he said, well, uh, Benjamin, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Today you might say, well, uh, we don't have those same spiritual motives, so I don't understand where you're going with this today. We might not have those questions about, hey, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I've I'm a, I'm a been a Pharisee. I've been zealous for the church. And, but, but today folks use these kind of questions. Well, what church do you belong to? What, 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 do you live a good life? Have have you, are you, are you depending on your baptism? We, we may be able to say those things and say, hey, look, I'm a good person. I go to a Baptist church. I, I, I help others out that the legalism that, that begins to say, hey, look at the things I do. And because I do all these things, I'm a pretty good person. And because I'm a pretty good person, surely God wouldn't allow me to go to hell. Because after all, look at all of these things I've done. And and the Pharisees and the Jews, that's what they use. And today, I think people, we, we still use that, that ideal of, of hey, when I look at myself, I realize I'm not that bad of a person. And And what Paul wants these folks to understand and what we need to understand through his writing here is that that we don't impress God with our actions and when we start trying to impress God with our actions our joy is gone now let me let me just ask you so you may not all know a person like this but does, do, do you know and then you don't raise your hand or anything but but do you know of anyone who's trying to 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 earn their way to heaven and if you know of that person, have you ever talked to them and just listened to the worry in their voice? Oh, I, I just hope that I've done enough. Oh, I, I just, my, my hope is that that I'm going to be able to get into heaven. And, and, and over and over, uh, if there's some sin, oh, I, I just hope God will forgive me of those things. And, and folks, when we live that ideal of, of it's about what I've done, it's, it's about my actions that get me into heaven that will steal our joy. And we need to understand, even today, there are people out there who will load us down with that baggage of, of how are you living? Are you living the good life? Are you giving enough? Are you helping enough? If we do those things, hey, we're going to get into heaven. When, when we begin to follow that direction, then, then we begin to be robbed of our joy of serving the Lord. Our salvation is about what Christ has done, and that's the last thing that, that Paul points out. He says... We must understand that nothing we can do earns our salvation. Look at verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for Christ. So he's following up what he just talked about. He talked about being the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisees, zealous for the church, all of these things, and just continuing on. But what these things were gained to me, I have counted them a loss for Christ, verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God. Now, I want to read that again. For me, it takes a few times for things to sink in sometime. Paul says, not being found in him and not having my own righteousness because of my works. My right, righteousness is simply a right relationship with God. Not having my own righteousness from the law. So Paul said, I'm, I'm not having, I'm, I'm going to be found in him, not my own righteousness, I'm in Christ, not because of the things I've done through the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ the righteousness which comes from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being confident to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What Paul is saying is is he wants the, the church at Philippi, hey, for us to maintain our joy, we need to realize that because of Christ, and because of the work of Christ, because of what Christ has done, we find a righteousness not through the law, not through our works, but simply through the work of Jesus Christ. He uses a, a metaphor here about about a gain and a loss column, and and as he does this, he he concern he, he considers how much he, he he credentials he had. He he kind of took those skills and and all the work he had done to achieve those things, all of the, the things he had done to to impress God and. He says, I, I count all them as things that are lost. I, I count all them as things that are nothing because all of my righteous efforts to, to be right with God, they don't mean anything. Second Corinthians 5.21, Paul, he talks about that. God made him who knew no sin for us, that, that in him we might have the righteousness of God. Paul wrote those things that, that he wanted to understand that, hey, all of my works and all of my things, only through God do I find righteousness. What Paul meant is I, I was running this race, I was, I was going, and, and I had a knowledge. And, and as Paul talks about this knowledge, that, that word knowledge can mean a couple of different things. Here's the definition. Knowledge means to learn by serious study, such as mathematics or physics and thus understand. So that's a form of knowledge, to go and open a book and understand, seriously study something and, and understand it. That's one definition. The second is is to know by intuition, as when we would say, oh, I know what's going on. In other words, something's happening, and, and you begin to look, and, and you begin to understand, you say, oh, I know what they're doing. Oh, I know what they're up to. That's another definition. Neither one of those definitions is what Paul's talking about. What Paul's talking about when he says in verse 8, knowing God. He's talking about that personal experience, that progressive knowledge. And I was thinking about that. You know, we can know someone through, through understanding about someone. I mean, I, I thought about people that, that I could use as examples, but, but, you know, we can get, and you can get on the computer, you can go to an encyclopedia, wherever you go find information. You can, you can study someone, and you can know facts about that person. And you can study someone, and you can know what they believe. And, and you can study about someone, and you can know everything about them. But that don't mean you know them, does it? But when you meet that person face to face, when you begin to talk to that person face to face, what I'm talking about, when you begin to build a relationship with that person, then you know them. And that's what Paul's talking about. That's the word he uses here. He's not talking about an intellectual knowledge. He's not talking about a a set of facts, a set of beliefs, a, a, a I understand everything. I have this intuition about Christ, but he's talking about knowing Christ face to face. And folks, that's the ultimate foundation of our joy When we realize it's not about us, it's not about our efforts, it's not about our works, but it's about what Jesus Christ done on the cross. And when we meet him face to face, then and only then do we know him. John Rice, he he got a book called Poems That Preach. He said, I've walked life's path with an easy tread and followed where comfort and pleasure led. And then by chance in a quiet place, I met my master face to face. With station and rank and wealth for gold, with much thought for body but none for soul, I'd entered to win life's mad race when I met my savior face to face. I built my castles and reared them high till their towers had pierced the blue of the sky. I'd sworn to rule with an iron mace when I met my favor face to face, I met him and knew him and blushed to see that his eyes were full of sorrow that were fixed on me, and I faltered and fell at his feet that day while my castles vanished and melted away, melted and vanished, and in their place I saw naught else but my master's face, and I cried aloud, O oh, make me meet to follow thy marks of thy wounded feet. And my thought is now for the souls of men, and I've lost my life only to find it again. And ever since, alone in that holy place, when I met my master face to face. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I want to ask you this morning, have you met the master face to face? You know, legalism says, hey, we need to know the facts. We need to know every detail. And then we need to follow this list of rules. When I get my scales and I get enough of of my righteous deeds on these scales, then it, th- those balances are going to swing my way. That's what the world would have us be. And oh, how miserable life is when we live a life of trying to meet the requirements, meet the demands of our own mind to find salvation. But... You know, Christ says, I've, I've paid the price, and it's a free gift. You can have the righteousness of God simply by saying, Jesus, I want your blood to cover me. And in that we find joy when we meet our Savior face to face. not simply saying, I, I know the rules, I know all the requirements, but when we know him, in him we find joy in Christ. Father, this morning as we consider your word, as we consider how you've directed Paul to, to help the church at Philippi have true joy. And, and over and over we've seen through these thir- first three chapters of, of Paul talking to the church and say, rejoice in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord. Father, I pray that we'd know that you desire that we have joy in you. Lord, I pray that we'd be aware of those things that would rob us of our joy, that we'd work towards maintaining our joy in you. Father, today I pray as we just have a time of invitation, I pray if your spirit would lead us, Lord, that we would respond to, to your calling for it to be here today that's never accepted that, that cleansing blood of Christ, never been, never been covered with the blood and never allowed your righteousness to, to come within us, that we would experience your joy, Lord. I pray today would be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray today if we've relied on anything else uh, to have that righteousness, I pray today that we'd confess to you Uh, that we only need you and we'd only serve you today. Father, however your spirit would lead, I pray that you would have your own way today during this time of invitation, that you would mold us and make us after your will while we wait in this place on you. In Jesus' name.